All right. Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. If this is your first day, this is going to be a really, really, really tough one. Uh, we encourage you to come back. Uh, today we're talking about what is called reprobation. So to take the edge off a little bit, you see that I've put some happy faces and some hearts and stuff around the word reprobation just to make it a little less scary uh, because this is a very difficult topic. So we are talking this semester about how we become Christians, how we are saved. Last semester we talked about how Christ purchased our salvation. This semester we're talking about how we then get the benefits of his redemption. And so for yes, last week actually when I was uh, sick, Jeff did an excellent job uh, teaching on election. Uh, today we're going to look at the corollary of that and what is called reprobation. Uh, but before we do, I want to say something pastoral. Okay, I want to say a few things pastoral. This topic today is probably the most difficult doctrine, not only that we've ever taught in theological equipping, but that probably we will ever teach. Okay? The fact that God could save more people than He does and decides not to is very, 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 very difficult, okay? So though I like to make jokes to keep things light, I like to keep you paying attention and keep you awake, it's early on a Sunday morning, I realize that this is a very, very difficult thing, okay? I have family members that are not Christians. I have friends that are not Christians. Uh, I have two kids that uh, are both very young. I don't know whether or not God will save them. I hope that He does, but I don't know, if, I don't know that He will. And so I realize that this, uh, this doctrine carries a lot of existential weight with it. This isn't merely head knowledge for a lot of us. We know people that are lost and we have to wrestle through why doesn't God give them mercy? He doesn't owe them mercy, but he could give them mercy. And we have all those kind of wrestles. And so I want to uh, recognize that this is a very, very difficult topic. In fact, I think the, most, the, the two most difficult uh, doctrines to teach on, I think one is hell and I think the other is reprobation. God's ordaining people to hell. And so I realize that this is very, very difficult. So like I said, if this is your first Sunday in here, please come back. When we talk about God's love or prayer or something like that, uh, it won't always be as, uh, as gloomy uh, as it might be today. To start off, though, I want to start with a little illustration. Imagine for a second that uh, you're talking to a friend and you just say, man, I really, really love, you're looking at a, a, a picture, you're looking at a painting, and you say, I love that beautiful shade of red. And your friend goes, red? That's green. What is wrong with you, Red. This is a green painting. This is the forest. Why do you see all these shades of red? And this man, you say, no, you're crazy. Look, there's red here. There's red here. And he looks at you and says, that's green, okay? And you guys get into a big fight. And you leave and you think, man, my friend is an idiot. He thinks that green, or he thinks these, this picture is green. Uh, it's kind of like that whole gold dress, blue dress thing that was blowing up the world uh, about a year ago or whatever. And so you're arguing and you're frustrated. And then one day you're at the eye doctor. And uh, the eye doctor informs you, sir, you are actually colorblind. You actually do not see colors correctly. Now, all of a sudden, your feelings towards your friend have changed because you realize if my eyes see something of a certain color, I could be wrong, but my friend's eyes are working just fine. The reason I start with that illustration is to say that's kind of how it works when we study predestination, when we study election, when we study reprobation, etc. We have to realize if we think that there is a problem with God, if we think that there is a problem with this doctrine, if we think there is a problem with the Bible, it's because we are colorblind, not because God is, okay? The problem is always with us. The problem is always with our understanding. The problem is never with God. He is the standard of righteousness. He is the standard of justice. He is the standard of goodness. What the Bible says is good, period, and now we have to reshape how we feel around the Bible, not the other way around, okay? 
So if you leave today and you say, Zach, I hate this doctrine. I hate that you said this. I don't believe this. This makes God seem uh, capricious or evil or whatever it might be. You need to realize the problem is always with us. The problem is never with God. What court do you take God to? What standard do you put him up against to tell him he's wrong? He is the definition of what is good. He is the definition of what is right. He's the starting point. So you need to keep that in mind as we study a very difficult doctrine that if there is a confusion or a frustration or this makes you mad, the problem is always with us. We, because of sin, are colorblind, to say it that way. God sees everything perfectly. You with me? Okay. Additionally, one more caveat before we get started. This is not something that you are required to hold to be a member here at Parkway. So even if you leave and you're like, I hate you, Zach, you ruined my life. The Bible ruined your life and... You're welcome to be a member here at Parkway. But this is something you need to know when it comes to election and predestination and the things we've been talking about. This is something our elders hold. It's something our staff members hold. Uh, It's something that I require that uh, that group leaders here uh, hold, that we want the same teaching that's happening in community groups to be the same teaching that's coming from the elder body. So with that in mind, smiley faces, sunshine, heart, flower, everything's okay, okay? Everything's okay. If you love Christ, this doctrine does not directly apply to you today. How, how How good news is that, okay? All right, with that in mind, let's get into some heady theological definitions. So we're going to be doing big boy theology today, so put on your, uh, gird your theology loins as we get started here. Predestination, let's go over some definitions. Predestination is this. Let's define some things and recap before we go. Predestination is the divine foreordaining of all that will happen, especially with regard to salvation. So predestination is kind of a general term for everything that God has ordained. But typically when people talk about predestination, they're specifically talking about God's uh, foreordination in election, in saving people or not saving someone, okay? Election is the positive side, and reprobation is kind of the negative side. So election, in a sense, is the standard. God elects to save people, and those he passes over are those who are reprobate. That's kind of the the other position. But let's go over each of these. Election. Now look at the definitions uh, of the next two specifically. Election. An act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit, faith or future decision to follow him, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That is what is known as the doctrine of unconditional election. When God decides to save somebody, it's not because of something within them, some sort of condition. It's unconditional. It's because of something within God where he says, I'm going to decide to set my love on this unworthy sinner because the sinner would never set his love on me. Next, reprobation. That's what we're talking about specifically today. Now look at the different definition here. Reprobation, an act of God before creation whereby he determines to pass over some men in salvation and to justly punish them for their sins to the manifestation of his justice. Now, notice the difference between that and election. Election is unconditional. God gives you something you don't deserve. Reprobation, though, is where God gives you something you do deserve, okay? God stands behind both of these, but he doesn't stand behind them in a symmetrical way. Next, sometimes you'll hear the term single predestination, Single predestination is that God actively ordains to save some, but does not actively ordain the condemnation of others, okay? He kind of decides to save this group. What's going to happen with the people he didn't choose? Mm, Who knows? That's single predestination, okay? He decides to elect somebody to salvation, and the rest he just kind of allows to passively go on their way. The other view is what is called double predestination, that God actively ordains the salvation of the elect and the condemnation of the non-elect. Okay? So we're going to recap these definitions. Okay? Here's our pop quiz for you. What is predestination? Someone give me just your general, without looking at the sheet, in your own words, give me a quick summary of predestination. 
Yes, God determines in advance. Excellent. What is election? Without looking at your notes. You cheaters. I see a lot of heads going down. I want that when you're studying the Bible in service. Right now, I want you to be looking up at me. Election. In your own words. Shout it out. Be proud. Even if you're wrong, be wrong confidently. Yeah, so, so in specifically in election that, that God is deciding to actively save some, correct? What is reprobation? Yes, to pass over in salvation or to damn those who he will not save. Single predestination? Yes, that he's active in election but passive when it comes to uh, uh, reprobation. And then double predestination? A little louder. I heard some mumbling. Active in both. There you go. Okay. Impress your friends. See all these terms you just learned? You come to church here at Parkway and you learn. Like we've said, we will never give you less than you need at Parkway, but we will oftentimes give you more than you need. So, okay. So those are just the definitions. Keep those in mind as we go through this study. Let's go through reprobation. Let me first give you the traditional Reformed perspective. Uh, this comes from uh, the Senate of Dort, which is a, uh, actually a response to Arminianism. Let me back up again before we get into this further. Let's talk a little bit about titles. We at Parkway believe the Bible. We preach the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, okay? Our authority is in the Scriptures. So when we use a term like Baptist or Calvinistic or Reformed, we're not saying, in addition to the Bible, here's this other thing that's on equal authority with Scripture that we subscribe to. That's not what we're doing. We're using conventional titles that society has used to further explain what we mean, okay? In fact, over the next two lessons, the next two weeks, we're actually going to be talking about the history of this idea of predestination, and we're going to see that a whole lot of people had to deal with this way before John Calvin. In fact, three-fourths of church history had already been dealing with this before Calvin even came on the scene. In fact, the word predestination doesn't even occur in Calvin's first writing of the Institutes of the Christian Religion because that's not his big deal. Okay? So when we say that term, when I say Calvinist or Arminian, or what, I'm using these conventional terms, but I understand that sometimes those are subject to misunderstanding. But for this lecture, you need to understand that the Calvinistic view, again, it doesn't start with Calvin. He got it from Augustine, and Augustine got it from Paul, and Paul got it from Moses, and Moses got it from God. God's view, Calvinism, uh, is this idea where it comes to, we'll get into this double predestination, etc. The opposite view is called Arminianism, named after a guy named Jacob Arminius. Not an Armenian, that's like an ethnic group, okay? People from Armenia, I think the Kardashians are a bit Armenian, and probably Arminian. Uh, but uh, Arminianism is the other view, okay? So what happened is you originally, to be Protestant is to be Reformed. It is to be Calvinistic. You had this group that followed in the teachings of a guy named Jacob Arminius, and so the church got together to condemn those things at uh, what is called the uh, Synod at Dort. And this is one of the canons that they came up with. This is Article 15. Let me read it to you. Moreover, Holy Scripture most especially highlights this eternal and undeserved grace of our election and brings it out more clearly for us and that it further bears witness that not all people have been chosen, but that some have not been chosen or have been passed by in God's eternal election. Those, that is, concerning whom God, on the basis of his entirely free, most just, irreproachable, and unchangeable good pleasure, made the following decision. 
to leave them in the common misery into which, by their own fault, they have plunged themselves, not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but finally to condemn and eternally punish them, having been left in their own ways and under his just judgment, not only for their unbelief, but also for all their other sins in order to display his justice. And this is the decision of reprobation, which does not at all make God the author of sin, a blasphemous thought, exclamation point, but rather it's fearful, irreproachable, just judge and avenger, okay? That is the historical view when it comes to being a Protestant, which we all are. If you're not Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox and you don't belong to a cult, you're a Protestant, welcome. And, uh, and so this is the historical view. This is the historical view of Baptist, traditionally, interestingly enough. Baptists are traditionally Calvinistic. Uh, it's only if you grew up in a Baptist church within the last... I don't know, 60, 70 years that you probably were taught Arminianism. So that's the view, that God not only actively ordains salvation, which Jeff talked about last week, but that he also ordains condemnation justly for those who are sinners who he decides not to save. That's difficult. That's a very difficult doctrine. Hence the smiley faces and the hearts. Let's look at some biblical passages. Okay, Zach, that's great. You're giving us some theology and some fancy philosophical terms. Does the Bible, though, teach that God passes over men in salvation, that he reprobates people? It does. Let me give you a few passages here. First of all, let's start in the Old Testament. I could give a lot in the Old Testament. Why did God choose Israel and not other nations and these kind of things, but we don't have time. I just want to give you one uh, as it pertains to, uh, to condemning people like Pharaoh and evil people raised up against Israel. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Without unpacking that too far, what that text is basically saying is that there are some people that God raises up for the express purpose of shutting them down and crushing them and showing his glory. Okay? Next, Proverbs 16.4 says this, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So everything has a purpose. God has made everything according to its purpose. So a, a crab crawls sideways weirdly on the beach, and the sun comes up in the day, and the moon comes up in the night, and it governs the night, and these kind of things. Well, one of the purposes that the wicked have is that God might judge them for his glory, and that's part of the reason they were created. Anybody have any of these passages like crocheted on a pillow at home? Any reprobation? I think that's where you leave, it, uh, you leave that in the room for your mother-in-law when she comes or whatever. Mother-in-law jokes. I'm kidding. My mother-in-law's great. I married into a family where this was, uh, was very easy, but I'm sure some of you guys have terrible mother-in-laws. So reprobationpillow.com. It's a new website I started. <laughs> Romans 9, 21 through 23. Look at this. It says this. <clears throat> Has not the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Why would God not save more people if he could? According to Romans 9, one of the reasons is to show us, those who have been saved, how much mercy he has had towards us knowing that God could have justly condemned us like he will most of the world, and knowing that we have been freed from that as Christians is one of the reasons that God does that, so that we might see his overwhelming mercy, okay? There's a sense in which if you're going to go on death row and you're pardoned, you'll be like, I'm glad I didn't go to death row. But if you just sat down and you watched someone be lethally injected and watched them fall asleep and then die, and then you're told you're not going to death row, you're like, woo! You see the mercy a whole lot more 
because of that, according to Romans 9. Also notice that uh, some are prepared for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. The same lump of clay, meaning humanity. Vessels for wrath, prepared for destruction. Okay? First Peter 2, 7-8. through 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. (gasps) Some people were destined to disobey God and not become Christians. Yep. This is tough. The God of the Bible is way, way, way bigger than the God of pop evangelical Christianity. Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace, uh, I'm sorry, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 17, 8, this one's great. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise up from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Let me pause there real quick. It's not Revelations with an S. It's just Revelation. We have a lesson about Revelation and how to read it on our website under Theological Equipping. So if you want to know what's going on with all the weird beasts and 666 and dragons and these kind of things, it's, it's, let me give you a hint. It's not Russia. It's not Pakistan or any of these weird things. It's something that would have made sense in the first century. So go check it out online, okay? And the dwellers on earth, look at this, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Here's what I want you to see. Last week, Jeff went over election and he gave a lot of biblical passages that teach that God predestines. That's clear. Like he said last week, I thought it was really good. You can't say, I don't believe in predestination. The word predestination occurs in the Bible. It's like saying, I don't believe in the word the. The question is, on what grounds does God predestine? Is it something in you or something in God? That's the question that you have to ask, and that's the question you have to answer. And so what I want you to see here, though, is it's not just the case that the Bible teaches election and doesn't say anything about reprobation. Logically, we could imply that if God elects some, that he doesn't elect others, and all we would need is logic, but the Bible goes beyond that. The Bible will go out of its way to say there are those prepared for destruction. There are those whose names have not been been written in God's book of life from before the foundation of the world. So let me give you a few illustrations, and then I'll give you some clarifications on reprobation. The reason we don't like reprobation is because we think that God owes humanity something. That's why we don't like it, okay? Let me say it stronger. The only thing that God owes humanity is eternal torment. That's what he owes us. That's what should get dished out if he's going to be fair. Everything else is a gift, This is one of the reasons why I hate the idea of entitlement. God owes you nothing. People owe you nothing. There's hell, and that's it. Anything beyond hell is a grace from God, okay? He doesn't owe you anything. What practically does this doctrine have for you today if you're a Christian? It's not that you're damned, because if you know Christ, you're not reprobate, but you need to hear this. This is where, how big is your God? Can God do, literally, whatever the heck he wants? Who does he think he is? God? Yes. He does think he's God. That's the question you're going to have to ask. We have a tendency to think that God is on the same level as us, just higher up, right? So there's like Jeff Ashley, he's pretty smart, and then there's like Einstein, and then above him is like Jonathan Edwards, and then God's just at the top. No, God is qualitatively different than us. His knowledge is infinite. He's not like us, but bigger. He's not like us at all. He's Trinitarian and sovereign and omnipresent and omnipotent and all these kind of things. You have to realize, can God literally control everything? 
we have a tendency to think that God is sovereign over everything except the wills of men. If God can't control the wills of men, then he can't control a lot of other things either. If the Bible's clear that it's God who determines who's put in power of governments, well, that's not true if God's not sovereign over the wills of men, right? Because we could just vote in somebody else and then God would be like, oh, my plans are foiled. If God raises up nations in the Bible, but he's not sovereign over the wills of men, then he can't raise up nations and destroy nations. If the Nazis are just smarter than other people, then they win World War II, and there's nothing God can do about it. The example I've given before is if you're really afraid to get on an airplane and your buddy says, don't worry, God can keep that plane in the sky, but he's not sovereign over the wills of men, if that, if that pilot wants to crash that plane and kill everybody on board, the pilot can and there's nothing God can do. You see, if God's not sovereign over everything, then one of those things he's not sovereign over could interfere with his plans of the things that he is sovereign over, okay? So the question you're going to have to ask, and really why I like talking about this doctrine, though it's scary, is it makes me step back and say, who do I think that I am? I am a creature. The example the Bible give, gives is of clay pots. If I'm a potter and I create a little pot, a little vessel, do I have the right to do with that pot whatever I want? Yes. If I want to take that pot and put it up on the shelf, I can do that. If I want to take that pot and smash it on the ground, I can do that, okay? If I want to take that pot and paint it and make it look all pretty, I can do that. If I make a pot and I smash it in my driveway, you cannot come up and say, you owed that pot more than smashing it. I will say, I'm sorry, the pot doesn't exist without me. I'm the potter. So the reason I like teaching this, especially to Americans, where we value freedom more than anything else, the Bible will value God's glory more than anything else, is it makes us really say, can God do whatever he wants? Is he really in charge? Because he owes nobody salvation. Okay? So another example of this. Let's imagine <clears throat> that there are five guys, not the, not the burger chain. <clears throat> there are five guys, and they break into somebody's house, and they kill their family, and it's awful. Okay? Five murderers, they break into someone's house, and they murder the whole family. They murder the kids, they murder the wife, they murder the guy, they murder all of that. And they are sitting in court, and the judge says, I'm going to let one of you go free, but the other four have to have the death penalty. Nobody says, how could you give those four the death penalty? Well, people do say that. Let me back up. Let me back up what I mean logically. Let's say those people are not getting the death penalty. They're, going, they're having life in prison. So we get the capital punishment thing out of the way. And the judge says, you four are going to prison for the rest of your life, but I'm going to let this one guy go free. Nobody says... Judge, why did you condemn those four? People would lose their minds, though, of the, the one guy that gets to go free. Judge, you're telling me you're going to take this person who's a convicted murderer and just put them back on the streets, just put them back out there in society. Why then, when it comes to God, do we do the opposite of that? We're offended that God condemns the four who deserve condemnation. We're not offended that he frees the one. And that shows you how backwards our thinking is biblically. We are always trying to ask the question, how can a loving God send somebody to hell, which the Bible never addresses? The question the Bible asks is, how can a just God get you into heaven without compromising his justice? Okay? And so it just shows how when we come to this issue, we already come arrogantly. We already come with pride, assuming that God owes humanity. God owes humanity hell. Everything else is grace. When you realize we are the four people in that murder example, we are the ones on our way to hell, for God to give us what we deserve is just. The fact that God saves anybody should be freaking you out. You should be super furious with God for saving people, but totally okay with him damning people. And we're typically the opposite. We're typically the opposite, okay? 
Let me give you 10 clarifications on reprobation, okay? And again, if you like this topic or you hate this topic, come back the next two weeks. We're going to talk about what has the church historically believed about predestination. This isn't something that started with Calvin. This isn't something that started with Parkway. This has been going on for 2,000 years, okay? First thing, let's go to a little, little church history here. Though there's not a complete consensus on this, scholars debate, St. Augustine, the most influential figure in church history outside of people in the Bible, uh, St. Augustine held a view that's probably closer to single predestination. When he writes on this topic, specifically writing against this bad guy named Pelagius, he mainly talks about God's ordaining people to be saved, and it's kind of implied that he passes over in people in salvation, but Augustine doesn't really stop to work out that doctrine. That's not his point. His point is trying to defend grace and try to talk about how we're born sinful. It's not to develop a fully orbed view of, uh, of predestination. So he probably held a view that's closer to single predestination. Number two, John Kelvin. John Kelvin. That's, uh, that's a guy that's different than John Fahrenheit. Uh, John Kelvin is a different scale of temperature. John Calvin uh, held a view of double predestination, not only because it's biblical, but because he said God doesn't do anything passively. God doesn't just ordain 90% of what's going to happen, and he just kind of guesses with the other 10%. It's not like there are 10 people here, and God's like, I'm going to save these five. What's going to happen to these other five? I don't know. I'm not going to worry about it. That doesn't work that way. God is, as the Reformers would say, actus purus. He's pure act. There's no potentiality in God. Whatever he is, he is all the way. And that means when he makes decisions, he makes decisions all the way. And so if he's ordained to save people, he is also ordained to condemn people. He doesn't do anything passively, okay? He doesn't do anything passively. Now listen to this next one. This next one is a zinger. I even put it in italics because it's such a zinger. Some people don't like this doctrine because they want humans to be ultimately responsible for why some people are condemned, but they don't realize that this would then mean that humans were ultimately responsible for why some people are saved. People don't like the idea of reprobation because they say it's not fair. I hate this idea that God would ordain for somebody to go to hell. It's got to be that person's fault. Well, if it's that person's fault, then guess what? It's also to that person's glory and credit if they're saved. See, ultimately, it's going to come down to not, do we choose God or does he choose us? The Bible says both. The question is, as Jeff has helpfully summarized, which is the cause and which is the effect? Which one happens first? Do we choose Christ because he chose us or does Christ choose us because we chose him? Okay. And what we would say here at Parkway is that the reason you decided to believe in Christ is only because he chose you first. He opened your heart. He ordained to save you. He died for you, etc. Okay. Number four. Now, I've put some quotes by different theologians here because I want to, to be very, very clear on this next part. This doctrine is not unfair. This doctrine only seems unfair if you think God owes sinful creatures salvation. So to use a, uh, an example from a guy who I know who's a pastor, he gave this helpful example. He said, thousands of airplanes take off and land every day. How many people, before you go to bed at night, you say, God, thank you for keeping thousands of airplanes in the sky and nobody crashing. But you let one plane fall out of the sky and people are like, where is God? Right? Because we just assume that good things should happen. It's a very millennial thing of us. We just assume that good things should happen to us and we don't realize that, no, those are a grace. God didn't have to keep any of the planes in the air. He could have had EMP hit with the planes in there and they just all crash and all this kind of stuff. Right? And so we have a tendency, when something goes bad, to say, where are you, God, instead of saying, why don't we say, where are you, God, with all the good things that happen? Okay? So let me give you some quotes about why this is not unfair. And mainly, here's the reason. Again, let me just summarize. Look at me. This is really important for you understanding this idea. When God ordains to election, it's just by his grace. When he ordains to condemn, we are being justly condemned for our sins. 
God stands behind both, but in a different way. One is unconditional. The other is something that's owed us. So keep that in mind as we read some different quotes from different theologians. First one comes from Ken Riddlebarger. Reprobation means that God does not choose all to receive eternal life, and these not chosen are left in the common misery into which, by their own fault, they have plunged themselves. This fact is important to grasp because it means that God does not prevent those not chosen from believing. This also means that God does not prevent people from coming to faith in Christ who otherwise would do so. We have already established the fact that if left to themselves, all those fallen in Adam do not want to believe the gospel and come to faith in Christ. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, his lament was, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not, meaning you're not willing. God passes over the non-elect, and he leaves them where they are, dead in sins and trespasses. He does not treat them unjustly, in fact, all those not chosen get exactly what they deserve. Okay? Next, the late R.C. Sproul, who just passed away this last year. Another significant difference between the activity of God with respect to the elect and the reprobate concerns God's justice. The decree and fulfillment of election provide mercy for the elect, while the efficacy of reprobation provides justice for the reprobate. God shows mercy sovereignly and unconditionally to some, and gives justice to those passed over in election. That is to say, God grants the mercy of election to some and justice to others. No one is the victim of injustice. Look at this next part. To fail to receive mercy is not to be treated unjustly. God is under no obligation to grant mercy to all. In fact, he is under no obligation to grant mercy to any. He says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And lastly here, the great uh, Protestant uh, Aquinas, Francis Turretin. As he who does not cure the disease of a sick man is not the cause, per se, of the disease, nor of the results flowing from it, so sins are the consequence rather than the effects of reprobation, necessarily bringing about the futurition of the event. That's the Red Bull talking. Necessarily bringing about the futurition of the event, but yet not infusing nor producing the wickedness. What he's saying is, if there's a sick person and you don't provide medicine, you're not the cause of the sickness, Okay? You're not the cause of the sickness. The cause of the sickness is the sickness. So he's trying to say that God can still be unjust in not giving people grace because he doesn't owe mercy to anybody. And then next, I've got a little summary here. You cannot complain that God ordaining people to go to hell is unfair. If anything, it is unfair for God ordaining people to be saved because hell is what we deserve. To say it another way, election should be more offensive to you than reprobation, though we often think of it the other way around. Okay. Number five. Humans are never condemned without sin. God is not condemning innocent people. He's condemning people who willingly sin and who rightly deserve it. Keep that in mind, okay? It's not as though you have this totally righteous person and this totally righteous person, and God says, I'm going to save this one, but damn this one. You have two totally sinful people, and God says, I'm going to save this one, and I'm going to condemn this one. Okay, those are different. He's only condemning guilty people. He's never condemning uh, righteous people. Number six. The word double in double predestination refers to the fact that God ordains both election and reprobation. However, they are not ordained in a symmetrical way, meaning the way God ordains election is unconditional. We don't deserve it. But the way God ordains reprobation is through the sins of those condemned, i.e., they do deserve it. Okay? Number seven, God ordains but does not cause the people to sin. The Bible will say that, right? That God uh, doesn't tempt, nor is he tempted, uh, that in him is light, there's no darkness at all. So he ordains that they sin, but he doesn't directly cause them to sin. 
D.A. Carson says this, To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty, yet the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes. On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. Here's what he's saying. God is sovereign over election and reprobation. He's sovereign over good and evil, but not in the exact same way. When God does good, it flows directly from God. God is good. God is light. God is love. God is all the good stuff, okay? As that flows from God, that flows directly from God. If we do something good, we're only secondary agents. It's really the Holy Spirit that's doing it. If I do any good act, that is not from Zach at all. It is only the Holy Spirit. I'm only just a secondary agent. When it comes to God ordaining evil, though, it's the other way around. Evil doesn't flow from God's nature. So what he does is he takes evil people, whether evil demons, whatever it might be, they're the primary causes, and then it's only chargeable back to God secondarily because he ordains it. Do you see the difference there? That God stand behind, stands behind good and evil, but in a different way. He stands behind good and that it directly flows from him. He stands behind evil and that he ordains it, but it does not directly flow from his nature. It comes from other things, okay? It comes from other things. Number eight, God saves people based upon Christ's righteousness and none of their own righteousness. God damns people based upon Adam's, there's supposed to be an apostrophe, that's a possessive, Adam's sin and their own sin, okay? So notice that uh, election and reprobation are different in this way, that God saves people based on nothing in the people, God damns people based on some stuff in the people, okay, upon Adam's sin and their own sin. Number nine, in case you're freaking out, you're sweating, you're like, oh no, I might go to hell, God may hate me, verse nine. Do you need to worry about whether or not you're reprobate if you love Jesus? No, okay? Jesus says in John 6 that anybody that comes to him, he will by no means cast out. If there is somebody wanting to come to Christ, that's evidence that there is regeneration going on. That's evidence that God is at work in their heart, okay? It's never been the case that there's been somebody who really wants to follow Jesus and Jesus just says no, okay? So the only people that the doctrine of reprobation would bother are people that don't exist, it would bother this imaginary third class of people that want to follow Jesus but somehow are reprobate. That doesn't exist. There are people that want to follow Jesus and who are elect. There are people that don't want to follow Jesus and who are reprobate. Those are the only two categories. There's not this unicorn, gnome third category of these mythical people that aren't corrupted by sin and want to follow Jesus. And Jesus is like, I know you want to follow me, but I don't want you to follow me. Okay? All right. Number 10. Though God does reprobate people, it is almost as if he does so with a different attitude than the way he elects people, okay? Now, in some sense, when I say that, that's, that's an anthropomorphism. God just is what he is, okay? But I want you to see that the Bible, when it describes election and reprobation, it sees God as getting glory from both, but it sees him, it's, it sees him in different lights. It's almost when he elects somebody that we're to bow down and praise him for his grace, and God delights in that. And when he reprobates somebody, he still decided to do it. He still gets glory out of it. But it's almost as if he was saying, I wish it didn't have to be this way. I wish it didn't have to be this way. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Okay? All right, Zach, you've just said and spent a bunch of time pontificating on why you think God wants to send people to hell. But what do you do with other passages, Zach? 1 Timothy 2.4, talking about God who desires all people to be saved, uh-oh, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, what do we do with this? Let me erase all the weird stuff here. So here's the question. Some passages say that God decides to love Jacob and hate Esau before they're born. Other passages say that God made people for destruction. Other passages say that uh, their, their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Yet you have other passages in the Bible where Jesus is calling for Jerusalem to repent and where it says that God doesn't want people to be damned and that he wishes that they would repent. How are we to understand both of these things? They seem like a contradiction. How are we to understand these things? This is, so let me describe it this way. This is what theologians have traditionally called the two wills of God. Okay, let me describe what that. I'm going to call it the two desires of God because the wills thing gets confusing. Sometimes when we're asking how many wills does God have, we're asking about his essence. Because God is one essence, one substance, he has one will, right? Orthodox Christology is that Jesus has two wills. He has a fully divine will, the same one as God, and he has a fully human will. Jesus has two wills because he's God and man. God, though, just has one will. What the Spirit wants is what the Son wants is what the Father wants. Historically, the church has decided there's only one will in God because God is one essence, one substance, one being. So that gets confusing when you talk about two wills of God. So I'm going to say the two desires of God. Here's what I mean by this. Is it true that God, in some sense, can desire one thing and, in another sense, desire something more than that? Okay, let me, ask, let me, let me give you an example. Let's say I say I don't want to mow my lawn. That's true, by the way, always. I don't want to mow my lawn. Yet, do I still mow my lawn? You might not know. The answer to that is yes. Depends on when you drive by. Depends on how you answer. Now, I, why do I mow my lawn then? I just said I don't want to do it. Then why do I mow my lawn? Someone give me an answer. Homeowners Association. More than I don't want to mow my lawn, I don't want some lady who has nothing better to do than to bug me, bringing me a letter saying to mow my lawn. So notice, I can want, I can desire two things. In one sense, it's like I desire, so here's me over here. There's me. Give me a cool hairdo. Yeah. Little beard. Okay, there's me. No eyes, nose. That's not, here's what's important, the beard. You don't need the other body parts. They're not important. There's a sense in which I desire this one thing. I don't want to mow my lawn. It's hot. It's sweaty. 100% chance I'll step in ants. More than that, though, I desire not to be bugged by the homeowners association, so I do this. I'll give you another example. I never desire for my kids to go through pain. I don't want my kids crying. I don't want them getting hurt. I don't desire for them to go through pain. But more than that, I discipline my kids when they disobey. Do you know why? Because I have a higher desire, I have a greater desire that they learn righteousness. So there's a sense in which I can, if I look across the spectrum, I can will one thing, but I can also will something else more than that, okay? I think the same thing is true with God. I'm just going to put a G here. You can't image God. He's invisible. God. There is a sense in which, because he's good and he knows it's what's best for us, that he wills the salvation of mankind. But there is another sense in which his greatest, his highest desire is his glory. God's highest desire is that he get glory both from showing people mercy and from condemning people, which shows both his mercy and his judgment. And that is his highest desire. In the same way that I can not want to mow my lawn and want to mow it because I mean different things, 
So God can want people to be saved and also not want them to be saved because he means different things. It's only a contradiction if you mean the exact same thing. If I say I want to mow my lawn, but I don't want to mow my lawn, and there's no caveats, that's a contradiction. But if I say I want to mow my lawn in the sense of I don't want a homeowner's association letter, but I don't want to mow my lawn because it makes me hot and sweaty and I don't like it, those are different. In the same way, when the Bible, the Bible will say God both wills for people to be saved and he wills for people to be damned, you have to understand the context of both of those are different. God can have one desire in the sense that he wants people to be saved because he's good and merciful and loving, but his ultimate highest desire is his glory. And in fact, this is another reason why I don't call it the two wills of God, this is all part of God's one will. God's one will is pointed towards his glory, and one of the ways he gets that is through election, and one of the ways he gets that is through reprobation. So this is all one flowing, if you will, from God. It's not like God is not schizophrenic or something like that. So that's what is known as the, uh, traditionally, the the two desires uh, of God. That God has a revealed will and a hidden will, okay? His revealed will is what's in Scripture. That's what I go by, okay? If I'm thinking about whether or not I should divorce my wife and there hasn't been some sort of uh, physical adultery, I don't have to be like, I wonder what God has ordained. I wonder what he wants me to do. He has told me in the Bible not to leave her, okay? That's all you have to worry about is God's revealed will, what he's given you in Scripture, the, the mysteries of God and what he's ordained, that's not for us to probe into, okay? Next, what do we mean and what do we not mean by the term free will? Okay, here we go. This entire debate between Calvinists and Arminians, I think in some sense, comes down to how you define the term free will. What one side is saying is we don't have free will, and what the other side is saying is we have free will. But historically, that's not what either position has argued, okay? Both sides, Calvinists and Arminians, agree that the Bible commands us to do certain things. Both agree that we have free will in some sense. The question is, how does that free will relate to God's sovereignty, okay? So let me give you the two different views here. The first is the Arminian view. This is what is called uh, freedom of indifference. It's sometimes called libertarian freedom or contra-causal freedom that you can choose against something's cause. But here's the view. You don't have to remember all those terms. There will not be a quiz. Here's what you have to remember. The Arminian defines free will this way. Ready? That you have the ability to choose something's opposite. Free will only works for the Arminian if you really chose it. God couldn't have chosen it for you, and you have to have been able to choose its opposite. Okay? That is the Arminian view of freedom. That freedom, free will, should be defined as the ability to choose something's opposite the ability to choose against your nature, okay? That if God has chosen it, you can't really choose it. If you've chosen it, God can't really choose it. What's called indeterminate, I'm sorry, what's called incompatibility, okay? I don't believe that that view of free will exists at all. I don't believe that that view of free will exists in the Bible. I don't believe God has that kind of free will. God doesn't have the ability to do his opposite. He can't be evil. He can't cease to exist, The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. So that view of free will doesn't exist for anybody, including God. You never have the freedom to act against your nature. If I walk off of a building, am I going to fall? Why? Because my nature is something that falls. I'm not a bird or something like that. I'm a human. And humans, when they walk off buildings, fall, typically. Okay? Right? So what you need to understand is that when we talk about free will, we can't mean what the Arminian means. The Arminian means that for a choice to really be free you had to have been able to choose its opposite. If you hold that, then God is not free. 
If you hold that, then God is not free. Jonathan Edwards in Freedom of the Will makes this case where he says, the problem is that people want to say that I'm only really doing a good act if I could have done a bad one. And I'm only really doing a bad act if I could have done a good one. Right? The problem with that is then God is not good. God only can do good, but if you take the Arminian definition here, then God actually isn't good and has never done a good act because he couldn't have done opposite. Is God a robot? That's a lot of times the language you get with Arminianism that, well, you're telling me God has made us as these puppets and these robots. Are you saying that God then is a puppet or a robot because only what he can do is what's good? He can only do what's according to his nature? No. The other view, and this is what I think the Bible means when it calls us to account and tells us to repent and these kind of things, is that you have the freedom to act according to your nature. This is what's called the freedom of inclination, right? You do what you want to do. A bird is free to fly. A lost person, because their nature is wicked, is free to be lost. They're not free to do what's righteous. That's not their nature. A saved person is free to do what's righteous because that's now part of our nature. We've been given the Spirit. And so there's a sense in which you really don't have free will unless you're a believer, I, as a believer, can choose to sin or not to sin. When I was lost, all I could do was sin, okay? All I could do was sin. Even my good deeds were evil when I was lost. They weren't done in faith. They weren't done to the glory of God, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So I say all of that simply to say this. Both Calvinists and Arminians will say we have free will. Both Calvinists and Arminians will say that they believe in God's sovereignty. The question is, what do they mean? What I mean when I say free will is that you have the ability to act according to your nature, When I was lost, I freely sinned. I wanted to sin. It was my nature, and I wanted to do it. The people that were ordained to crucify Christ also wanted to whip him because they hated him. When I became a believer, though, I got a new nature. My, to quote Dave Young, my want to changed. My highest desire, my my pointing towards what I want to do changed. I was given a new nature, and that new nature wants to then walk in righteousness. You always do what you most want to do. You don't always mow your lawn, but you always do because you don't want the HOA letter. You always do what you most want to do. When you were lost, you most wanted to live for self. And when you become a believer, you most want to live for Christ. Your most want to meter changes. Okay? Now, the biggest... Oh, let me mention one more thing, and then I'm going to have Jeff come up. Let's talk about some terms here. Oh, man, Jeff. Oh, man, my spelling. Nailed it. <laughs> if you're new, I uh, don't know how to spell. But might I remind you that in uh, the Greek manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, there are a lot of misspellings, yet that doesn't change the accuracy of God's word because you still know what he means. So God agrees with me. Spelling is not as important. Anyway, let's talk about these two words here. The Calvinistic view is what is known as compatibilism, and the Arminian view is what is known as incompatibilism. Let me explain what those two terms mean. The Calvinist says that God can ordain something that you also freely choose, and both can be true at the same time, okay? That if God ordains it, that doesn't mean you didn't make a decision. And if you made a decision, that doesn't mean that God didn't ordain it. Somehow, both can be true at the same time. The Arminian view is incompatibilism, okay? This is not a capital C. I just, again, have bad handwriting. Incompatibilism. It is the view that if God has truly decided it, you can't decide it. And if you've truly decided it, for it to be your real decision, God couldn't have made that decision for you. It's what's called incompatibilism. 
So really, the main difference, so we've learned a lot in here. Everybody take a big breath. (sighs) The main difference between the Calvinist and the Arminian is this. Can God ordain something that you also decide? Or is it the case that if God has ordained it, you didn't decide it? Or if you did decide it, God didn't ordain it? The question is, can God's decision and your decision go together? Or are they separate? Well, they're separate. Are they, can they not go together? That's a better way to say it, okay? The Calvinistic view would say that God can both ordain something that you also want to do. Let me give you a few examples. Is it ordained in the Bible that Judas will betray Christ? Yes, right? That he who dips his hand in the dish with me will lift up his heel against me from the Psalms. Does Judas then not really want to betray Christ? No, he does want to betray Christ because he's evil and he wants that sweet, sweet silver, right? What about the people whipping Jesus? Is it already ordained that Jesus is going to be crucified for our sins? Yes, go read Isaiah. But that doesn't mean that the Roman soldiers whipping Jesus are like, why is this happening? I want to bow down. I can't control my arm. That's not what's happening. They also want to whip him. Notice that they go together. God has ordained Judas' betrayal, and Judas wants it because he's evil and it's part of his nature. God has ordained the crucifixion of Christ, and the Roman soldiers want that because they are evil. Notice that God can ordain something that people also want to do. The incompatibilist view, the Arminian view, is that if God has really decided it, it's not really your decision. So how could you hold people accountable? And if you've really decided it, then how could God have ordained it? It's incompatibilism. So really the question is, to quote theologian Wayne Grudem, can God cause people to freely choose his will? Okay, it's a little bit of a paradox, but that's the point. God can ordain something that you also want to do. God ordains the condemnation of lost people, and guess what? Lost people hate Jesus and don't want to follow him and, in a sense, want to be condemned. They don't want the punishment. They don't want the fire. They don't want the hot. They don't want the bad stuff, but they don't want to follow Christ, which is why C.S. Lewis says hell is locked from the inside. But for those that are believers, God has wanted to save us. He's given us a new nature, and now we want to be saved. So notice that what God wants and what we want aren't really in conflict in that sense. God wants to save us, and he gives us a new nature, and guess what? We want to be saved. Or he doesn't want to save, and so he doesn't give a new nature, and guess what? People continue in their condemnation. Reprobation. Amen. Jeffrey, come up here. We're going to do some, are we doing questions? We're doing some questions. Jeff said that I will answer, and I quote, all your questions on predestination today, last week. That's the only thing I heard with my sick brain uh, going on. But we're going to have a little, uh, little Q&A on this topic. 